with me this morning once again to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, I again remind you that uh, there are Bibles on the back table that you certainly could use as well as the passage for this morning being printed in the insert of your bulletin. I know it feels like we've been in Acts for a long time. It feels that way because we have been in Acts for a long time. Uh, We've been in this book for a couple years now with some breaks in between. Uh, We, um, I am uh, trying to to make sure that we get through it as quick as we can, uh, as quick as is reasonable uh, in walking through this story uh, here at Ascension. We're in the middle of uh, the story of God building His church, uh, this vehicle uh, for salvation that he is putting on this earth while he is away. And specifically, most recently, we've been looking at the story of the Apostle Paul as we have been following this influential figure of the early church, this servant of the Lord Jesus who proclaims his name all over the known world. And just to remind you, Paul has been on the move, right? He has just finished, wrapped up recently his third missionary journey. He has had years of full freedom to travel. And it's about to change. He's about to be locked down for the rest of his life. After years of winning souls to Jesus, Paul is now preoccupied with trying to calm the mobs of Jerusalem. And following a ministry of encouragement to the churches that he planted and sought to nurture, now Paul himself becomes in need of encouragement. You see, as Paul has set his feet back in Jerusalem, it's it's a homecoming of sorts for Paul. He spent some time in this city. He studied in this city, he knows this place, but the reception that he receives is far from warm, it's downright hostile. Paul is no hometown hero in Jerusalem, he is a traitor of sorts. Paul has preached with great success around the Roman Empire the good news of Jesus to Gentiles, to those who weren't Jewish by ethnicity to those who are outside of the people of God. Gentiles then have been coming to Jesus, but they're not becoming Jewish. They're skipping that part. They're just becoming Christians. Under Paul's instructions, they're leaving the requirements of the law, they're leaving the ceremonies of Judaism, and they're claiming that Jesus is enough. And of course, to generations upon generations of Jewish history, of Jewish pride, of strict observance to the law, this just simply wasn't okay to the populace. And so as we saw last week, Paul returns to the city and he seeks through his participation in one of their ancient rituals, this Nazarite vow that these four men are going through, he seeks to show them that he is still for them. But how did our passage end last week? It didn't work. Instead, they cried the very same words that Jesus heard. 
away with him. And that's where we find ourselves this morning as we pick up the story in verse 37 of Acts chapter 21. You can see the last words of verse 36 being away with him. And so let's pick up the story. Acts chapter 21 verse 37 reading all the way down through verse 29 of chapter 22. This is God's holy word. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus, In Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous of God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were with them and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and I drew near to Damascus about noon, A great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, he came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. 
And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he, that is Paul, said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. It's quite a dramatic scene that we come to this morning. The Apostle Paul has found himself firmly in the grip of the Roman authorities who are at the moment protecting him, actually protecting him from this mob that is bent on his destruction. And they don't know exactly what they have with Paul, but they know that they have disorder. And in the Roman Empire, disorder is never a good thing. This tribune, this Roman soldier who holds him, suspects that he is some escaped Egyptian leader of a group called the Assassins. History tells us that the Assassins were literally dagger men. They were this terrorist group, we might say, this revolt group that had terrorized Jerusalem as they would come into crowds and large gatherings in the city and they would stab Jews who were sympathizers with Rome. See, they thought to overthrow Rome. And so when the governor, Governor Felix at the time, discovered that the assassins and this Egyptian leader were mounting an army to overthrow the government, he quickly squelched the rebellion. But the leader scattered, and they never found him. Well, Paul makes clear, "I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm not your Egyptian terrorist. I'm actually a well-educated Jew from the university town of Tarsus. And it's that prestige and the way that he interacts with that tribune that sets up the main portion of our passage this morning. This, This is a passage about story. It's about Paul's story. In his own words, Paul has given his story, he has given his testimony, his story of grace before. This is not the first time, and it won't be the last time. But this morning, as we look at Paul's story, I want to focus on that idea of story. We all have stories in this room. 
fascinating stories. Many of us, most of us, maybe all of us, have stories of grace. Stories of how God has gripped our hearts and brought us to himself. I want us this morning to think about story. To think about your story. To think about God's story through the Apostle Paul. And I want us to do that through three encouragements to you, the church. And I am going to speak mainly to the church, to those of you who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. We're glad that you're here. But even as I speak to the church, even as God speaks to the church through His Word this morning, I want to tell you who aren't Christians this morning, That God speaks to you. That it's no mistake that you're here. But that as we learn of God's story, as we learn of Paul's story, you ought to be reminded of the story that God is writing with you. And the plot that brought you into this church this very morning to hear of what God has done for you. Three encouragements for us this morning for the next few minutes. And the first one is this. Recognize and recount the power of your story. Recognize and recount the power of your story. I've confessed this to you before, but I'll do it again for the sake of those of you who are new. I have a guilty pleasure of watching the TV show Cops. I love cops. I'm not afraid to say it. I don't know what it is about cops. Maybe it's the combination of just pure reality action with the satisfaction of seeing the good guys win with the help of tasers. Some of us in the family were watching a rerun of Cops this past week. And we saw an interesting exchange in the show. A young African-American man had been apprehended after a chase. And this police officer who had tackled him and cuffed him was trying to get him to confess that this bag of drugs that he had found in a bush was his. That he had dropped it as he was running. And this white police officer was getting absolutely nowhere with this young African-American male. But then up walks this large, and I mean large, African-American police officer. And he comes and he gets in the face and he takes over the questioning and, and the demeanor of the young man completely changes. My older kids who are watching it, they actually brought it up to me. I mean, I noticed it too, but they said, wow, look, look at what's happening there. You see, it was clear that this second officer had the criminal's respect. And in short order, this officer had had gotten a confession out of him. Yeah, it was my bag. My bad. It was an interesting picture of the power of common ground. You know, in that case, in that scene, it was the color of the officer's skin. 
It was the color of the officer's skin that said, hey, I'm one of you. You can trust me. As we turn to this story of the Apostle Paul back in Jerusalem, I want you to see that that's initially what what Paul is after. As he begins to speak to his people, this mob that has formed and, and has shouted away with him, he's trying to communicate to the crowd, you can trust me, guys. I'm telling the truth. I am one of you. And it's really, as we think, church of Jesus, as we think about our own witness to the world, as we think about our own evangelistic encounters, our own divine appointments that the Lord gives us to speak of the hope that lies within us, it's the same thing that we want. We want to be heard in order to speak truth. And so I think Paul brings our attention in subtle ways, he brings our attention to three things, three encouragements about the power of our story. And the first one is this. He gave them respect. Paul gave his audience respect. Now he had already sought, as we saw last week, those of you who were here, he already sought to accommodate the weak by participating in this Nazarite vow, but that didn't work. And so one might think, if it were me, I'd just be geared up to put this mob in its place. I know the truth. They don't. Let me just blast into them. But Paul, much like Jesus before him, with gentleness, with respect, with some degree of formality, he says, Fathers, brothers. You see, it was years ago that Stephen, God's servant Stephen, began his speech the very same way, with patience, with love. Paul displays some of the fruit of the Spirit that we need to pray for in our own interactions with others, particularly those in our lives who are hard to love, who might be hostile to the message. How hard this is. But he gave them respect. And it comes in part by remembering where you came from. Where we came from. Where we would be. One thinks of the famous quote from John Bradford, the 16th century English reformer, who's recorded as saying, but for the grace of God... There go I. As Paul looks out among this crowd that is seething for his death, he knows, but for the grace of God, there go I. So fathers, brothers, let me tell you my story. That's the first thing. But two, he spoke their language. It's a very small thing that Luke records for us, but it's, it's powerful. I mean, that was the first step in communicating effectively with the Jews. He addressed the Jews in their own language. In the New Testament, when we hear this term Hebrew, it means Aramaic, which was the first language of the Jews. 
And Luke records for us that it has this quieting effect. It has this hushing effect on the crowd. As Paul says, hey, fathers, brothers, listen to me. I'm one of you. I know you. As I was thinking about this small thing, of course, we here in the United States, we we speak the same language as those around us, the same formal language. But it made me think a, a level underneath that, a layer underneath that, that do we always speak the same language as those around us? Are we aware of what we're saying? Are we aware of, of how we're talking? Just like any belief system in our world, just like any worldview, there is a certain lingo, there is a certain time it takes to get up to speed with everything that is talked about. But there's no reason for us to needlessly make the gospel foreign to those who we rub shoulders with in the workplace, to those who we love in our families. The gospel is revealed to us by God in ways that we can understand. God has condescended to us and we can communicate in the same way. You've heard of the term, maybe some of you have heard of the term Christianese, where we have these phrases that we love to say kind of in this room, right? Well, some of the comedians make fun of these. Like, I pray a hedge of protection around you. I pray for traveling mercies. See, those, those phrases, are, they're not bad phrases. I'm not saying stop saying them. But they're phrases for us. They're phrases that we understand, or maybe we don't understand. If you don't, talk to me afterwards. I'll explain to you where those phrases come from. But outside of this room, those phrases don't make sense. They might as well be a foreign language. And so I was fishing around and I found one author who suggested some of these following words. Repentance, sin, grace, being born again, Savior and Lord. Wonderful, wonderful terms. Wonderful language, but are we communicating those in such a way that people understand what we're saying? I remember being greatly frustrated on this point when a group of two Mormons came to my door. We started talking about one word, the word grace. Oh yes, we believe in grace, they say. No, you don't believe in grace. You don't understand grace. Well, yes, we do understand grace. It's like I was a cat chasing my own tail. See, our words matter. Our language matters. We need to speak the language of our day. There's a word for this. We as elders have been reading a book and the last couple chapters that we read were talking about the word contextualization. 
The definition of that is giving the Bible's answers to questions about life in language and forms that they can comprehend. Paul's simple language shift here makes makes us think of that. It's hard to do. There are lots of things to be concerned and careful about. it. And, And let me make this clear. Contextualization or speaking the language of those around us, is not in any way out to soften the message of the Gospel, or to change the message of the Gospel, just to simply show that it is not entirely alien. And that's the last thing Paul wants to communicate as he's telling his story. The last of these three things. And that is, he wants to show them that he is like them. That he is not an alien from another planet. My wife often asks me this question. I hope I don't embarrass her. She often asks me, do you understand me? And of course, I as a good husband, I always understand her. (laughs) I always know exactly what's going on. She wants to be understood. I want to be understood. We all want to be understood. We all want to be truly known. As Paul jumps into this speech to the Jews, eyes are written all over it. We thought he was going to jump into the story of Jesus. We thought he was going to jump into a sermon. But no, he begins with him. I did this. I am this. I received this. And Paul is reminding his brothers and fathers, his fellow Jews, whom he speaks the same language with, whom he loves with compassion and patience, that I am not an alien, I'm just like you. I'm born a Jew. We've got the same blood. I'm educated by Gamaliel, one of the most respected leaders and teachers of that day. At one time, I was just as zealous as you are now about the same things that you are zealous about right now. I've been in your shoes, Paul says. In other words, Paul's saying, I I understand you. I get you. He said something similar to the Philippian church. He will write after this in Philippians 3, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. You see, Paul tells his story because he wants them to know him. He wants them to know that he gets them, that he understands them. Recount the power of your story. Of course, our context is entirely different than the Apostle Paul. We don't live in this ethnically charged environment like Paul did. But the principle still remains as we think about taking this passage and, and applying it to our lives. The world needs to know that we get them, we We're just like them, and in some ways we still are. We watch some of the same movies, we listen to some of the same music, we read some of the same books, but we digest them in a completely different way. 
And you know what? We long for the same things. To be loved. To live at peace. To know hope. To be confident that that good is going to prevail. Creatures made in the image of God. We're, We're together in this. Tell your story. There's power in a changed life. And God can use it. Better yet, ask someone their story. Listen to, to what they have gone through, what their perceptions of the world are, and pray for the common ground in your stories to build the gospel upon. I think that's the first thing that Paul shows us this morning that the Lord reminds us of is to recognize and recount the power of our story. But there's a second thing I want us to see for just a few minutes, and it's this. Remember that you do not write the plot. Remember that you don't write the plot to your story. As Paul has presented his credentials here in this speech to his fellow countrymen, in order to defend his ministry, in verse 6, he moves his ministry and calling outside of himself. He gives all these earthly Jewish credentials. And then suddenly his speech begins bubbling with the supernatural. The common ground that he sought to establish with his listeners suddenly turns into a declaration of uncommon, unbelievable, amazing grace. And so Paul unashamedly goes there. He points to grace. And as, as we might say for Paul, hey, I'm a, I'm a victim of pursuing grace. I just told you what I was doing. It's just like you. And I was accosted by the risen Jesus. Paul shouldn't have been converted. Paul shouldn't be doing what he's doing. Not my idea, Paul says. See, contextualizing the gospel, speaking the gospel in words and in language that those around us can hear, is not simply telling people what they want to hear. Because it's inevitable that at some point the gospel is going to cause an offense. At some point, as as hard as you try to find common ground, to speak their language, to be patient and loving, to remind them that you're just like them, at some point the gospel is going to blow their minds. And of course, we know as good Calvinists, as good Presbyterians, that the Holy Spirit is behind that and, and we are dependent upon Him and prayerful concerning His work in the hearts of those we talk to. But at some point, we're simply going to have to offend with the gospel. Maybe it's the message that we're all sinners. It's offensive. Maybe it's the specific requirements of the law. The specific kind of life 
that following Jesus demands. It's offensive. Or maybe it's those things that they see in you that they don't want because they're holding tightly to who they've always been. You see, at some point, as patient and as careful as we try to be, the amazing grace of the gospel simply needs to be unleashed. And even then, we're reminded that it's the Lord who gives eyes to see. Right? I mean, Paul does this gives this speech, this impassioned speech. He, he tells his story. There's power in his story. There's power in his identification with his people. There's power in the, the proclamation of what he's experienced on the road to Damascus. And, and what effect does it have on the people? Nothing. It only makes the mob matter. There's no change in heart. There's no change in Paul's destiny or direction. Paul is still headed into Roman arms to be flogged. See, it's a reminder that we don't write the plot to the story. We just are faithful in how we tell it. It's not the way we would have drawn it up. But it's not our story. And that leads us to the final encouragement that I want us to see this morning from this account, and it's this. Rejoice in the story that God is writing. Rejoice in the story that God is writing. We can't miss the big picture here as we walk through this passage. Because ultimately, this passage is not about Paul. It's not even about what we ought to be doing in order to imitate Paul in his evangelistic message. But it's about the author himself. Author with a capital A. See, God, here through the ministry of Paul, is making a people for himself from all nations. And he has commissioned, Paul has given testimony that he has commissioned Paul for this purpose. And Paul would write in his letters, Here there is not Greek or Jew, uncircumcised or circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. One body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. So as we think about the story, as we think about our story, at the center of this whole story is God's story. And the hero of the story, the Lord Jesus Himself, who brings together in beautiful combination the first two truths that we talked about. He came to do what we could never do because Jesus didn't just speak our language, although he does do that. But he became one of us. Jesus became one of us. 
The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 4.15, we have one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who has been tempted as we are, but without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. And He has made us see what we could have never seen ourselves. As much as Paul tried to get his fellow countrymen to see it, they, they couldn't see it. They were blind. And you and I would be blind if it weren't for the story of Jesus and the story that God is writing in you. Because he doesn't just present us with an option. He doesn't present himself as an option to us. No, he makes us his own. Just like he made Paul his own. John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You see, this, this incarnation, this irresistible grace, to use the theological terms to describe Jesus' work as the hero of God's story that he's writing with us, that is where our joy lies. And that's why we have a message to tell. That's why we have a story to proclaim. This is our story, predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High, now called to share the story of grace through our stories as we recognize and recount what God has done in us, as we remember the author of the plots of our lives, and as we rejoice every day in the Gospel and in what God has accomplished in us through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the experience of Your servant as he boldly proclaims of Your work in his life, a work that literally knocked him off his horse. And yet what a beautiful story you wrote through the Apostle Paul's life and what a beautiful story you revealed to him to proclaim. Father, as we go from this place this morning thinking about our stories, rejoicing in Your call on our lives, thinking about the stories of those around us and how we can form common ground and build upon that for the glory of Your name. Lord, we recognize our need, our dependence upon Your Spirit and upon Your grace. And so I pray that You would plant this Word deep in the hearts of Your people and do Your work that it might not return to You void, but might accomplish all that You intend for the glory of Your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.